Children with sustained developmental delay are at higher risk for learning difficulties, behavioral problems, and functional impairments later in life. There's lots of interest in the possibility that earlier screening might improve health outcomes among children with developmental delay. Some guidelines even suggest screening all children for developmental delay. But has this proven effective? The Canadian Task Force on Preventive Healthcare has reviewed the evidence on the effectiveness of population-based screening for developmental delay in primary care settings. I'm Dr. Diane Kelsall, Interim Editor-in-Chief for CMAJ, and today I'm speaking with Dr. Patricia Parkin, Pediatrician at the Hospital for Sick Children and Professor in the Department of Pediatrics at the University of Toronto. She is one of the authors of the Developmental Delay Screening Guideline published in the CMAJ. Hi, Patricia. Thanks so much for joining me today. It's a pleasure to join you, Diane. Well, first of all, I know that this guideline is about screening for developmental delay, but first let's talk about typical development. Can you tell me a bit about that? Yeah, I think that's a great place to start. Um, interestingly, children, human beings, uh, attain specific skills or acquire skills in a very predictable sequence over time. Um, and this probably reflects the interaction between the child's developing brain and their interaction with their environment. Developmental skills are typically grouped into several domains. Uh, These would include gross motor skills, fine motor skills, communication such as speech and language, um, cognitive skills and social emotional skills. And some of these key performance skills like walking um, have been referred to as milestones. For each skill, it's really interesting that the normal age range for acquiring the milestone can vary quite widely, and that's something that's very important for both parents and clinicians to remember. And individual children develop at different rates, and this all may be considered within the range of typical. And the age of acquisition of some milestones is really consistent. For example, young infants smiling at eight weeks of age is, is found to be quite a consistent acquisition of a milestone, whereas some milestones, quite interestingly, uh, can vary quite widely. And a good example of of that is that some children never learn to crawl, yet the rest of their gross motor skills develop in a normal trajectory. So that's just a general outline of what we mean by typical development. So then, could you briefly describe what is meant then by developmental delay, the term that's used in this guideline? Yes. The term developmental delay is one that is used throughout the developmental uh, literature, so it's important for us to understand it as a term. It usually applies to young children sort of in the first five years of life. Um, There's certain characteristics that suggest developmental delay. Uh, A very strict definition would be an acquisition of a skill that's 1.5 to 2 standard deviations or more below the age expected norms. Just remembering that there's a range. It's not one single age that developmental skills are acquired. So it's really important for us as clinicians to have some knowledge of developmental milestones and the age range that they they are acquired at and to be alerted to those um, delays. It's interesting, too, that delays can occur in a single domain, and a really good example of that is isolated expressive language delay. But then sometimes children will have delays in two or more domains, and uh, this is often referred to as global developmental delay. Another thing that clinicians always need to be on the lookout for is what's called developmental regression. Well, that is the loss of a previously acquired skill, And that is always, um, clinicians should always be alert to that because that's quite concerning. 
I think another important thing to remember is that parents actually are quite attuned to their children's development, and uh, the literature suggests that they're the ones that often are the first to um, identify concerns about their children's development. So um, I think as clinicians, we need to listen to parents when they have concerns that something isn't just right. And parents often have a pretty good uh, awareness of norms for gross motor milestones, such as walking independently. Um, But we must remember that some of the more nuanced aspects of development, such as speech and language acquisition and play skills, are sometimes more difficult for both clinicians and parents to identify. So that may be a place where we as clinicians need to be even more aware of opportunities for um, identifying delays. Now, are there any characteristics sort of typically seen in children with developmental delay, or is each child quite unique in this? I know you gave sort of some patterns already um, in, in, in our talk. Yes, I think every child is individual, but if we as clinicians remember that there are these very uh, common predictable sequence of development that we can identify uh, delays, remembering that there is a range and that there is difference between children. Now, what factors um, actually may increase the risk of developmental delay? So there's a large number of factors. These can include prenatal factors, um, any uh, pregnancy risk factors. They can include genetic factors, exposures during pregnancy, exposure during early life. We also know that there are some social determinants that may uh, place children at high risk for delays in development. Now, some children, from what you're describing, may have sort of um, a temporary developmental delay. They may be slow to develop in one particular area, but there are some children where this um, developmental delay is sustained. So what outcomes are they at higher risk for? So just to emphasize your first point, which is that uh, apparent delays in development can be transitory, and so uh, it's important for us not to over-identify children in that regard. And and again, an excellent example is isolated expressive language delay, which can be uh, transient in up to 50% of children, meaning at one age they may appear to be um, behind in their language development, but later their language emerges and uh, follows a typical pattern. On the other hand, some children um, have persistence of their uh, evidence of delays, and those children, we have concerns that they will ultimately have more difficulties in development uh, longer term, including behavioral problems, cognitive problems, and maybe problems throughout the life course. Now, the Canadian Task Force has developed this guideline, um, Recommendations on Screening for Developmental Delay. Why was there a need for this guideline? So I think there were uh, several reasons that the task force identified this topic as a priority. Um, first of all, the task force had not updated their previous guideline from many years ago. Um, but more importantly, over that time period, there's a body of research that has really identified uh, the importance of early human development and the opportunities that practitioners have in promoting healthy brain development. There's also been some more research on interventions that are started at the earliest uh, times in life and that early interventions um, have the potential to improve lifelong outcomes as compared to 
uh, interventions that might be started later. So to give an example, interventions that are started in early preschool years have the potential to improve children's outcomes as compared to interventions that might be started only later when the child is identified and uh, receiving interventions during school. So there's been a lot of interest in early identification of delays. As a result, there's been an idea that primary care practitioners may be in a very unique position uh, to identify children with developmental delay. Just remembering that primary care practitioners have really frequent contact with young children uh, during these critical early years. So this has then raised the idea that there might be the opportunity to develop uh, what what we're calling in the guideline standardized screening tools. These would be uh, questionnaires, for example, that are completed by parents to identify areas of strength or concern in children's development. So these screening tools have been developed over the past uh, one or two decades. These screening tools are usually parent-completed. They're usually brief. Um, They could be completed in a waiting room or an examining room, and they usually examine across domains of children's development. Uh, If if that's the case, then we call them uh, general development screening tools. And then sometimes they assess a specific domain, such as speech and language, or a specific developmental disorder, such as autism spectrum disorder. So these tools have become widely available in primary care practice. Several professional organizations are recommending these tools, and um, policymakers are now making uh, recommendations about using these tools. So for all of these reasons together, uh, the task force felt that it was a very timely uh, topic to examine whether there was evidence that these uh, standardized screening tools could actually improve uh, early identification and therefore allow children to be referred for early uh, intervention. So it sounds like this guideline is, is for primary care practitioners to use. Um, what patient group does it apply to and, and to whom does it not apply? So it's important to remember that as in all task force uh, recommendations, this applies to um, individuals in the population who have been not identified as having any concern. So specifically for this guideline, we're focusing on early childhood. We define this as one to four years of age and uh, specifically children who have not been identified as having any concerns around development and whose parents and clinicians have no concerns about their development. So going back to our definition of typical development, this would uh, mean children for whom there's no concern about their uh, ability to sequentially develop uh, milestones in, in a typical way. Um, this recommendation does not apply to any child who presents with concerns on the parent's behalf or concerns from the clinician that they might have signs or symptoms of developmental delay. Or, for example, it does not include children who are already being monitored because they are at high risk for uh, concerns around development. And as an example of that, there are some many children who uh, were delivered up prematurely or had low birth weight who have already been identified as being at risk and are already in a developmental program. These children we are not um, uh, dedicating the guideline to. So the aim of the guideline is to provide direction to primary care practitioners about the use of standardized uh, general developmental uh, screening tools that could be used at all health visits um, in primary care. Now, the task force recommends against screening for developmental delay in children 1 to 4, as you said, who don't have any signs of developmental delay and whose parents have no concern about their development. 
Tell us why the task force made this recommendation. It's different than some others that are out there currently, such as the American Academy of Pediatrics and the Canadian Pediatric Society. That's right. So first of all, we have found the need to emphasize that the recommendation against screening is specifically against screening using standardized tools. So uh, just want to underscore that. So to arrive at this recommendation, um, we undertook a detailed assessment of uh, the literature, um, and we decided to examine three lines of evidence, and we also focused on high-quality evidence. So I'm just going to go through the three lines of evidence. First of all, we examined direct evidence for the benefits and harms of screening using standardized tools. So we only found two randomized trials of screening. The first study uh, was conducted in the U.S., and in this study, um, in primary care practice settings, the investigators used a combination of a general developmental screening tool plus an autism-specific screening tool. And what these investigators found is that there were improvements in what we call process outcomes. And I'll give you an example of a process outcome is referral rates to early intervention. But these investigators did not examine clinical or patient-important outcomes, and we saw that as a limitation uh, to this particular study. The second study we found um, assessed a speech and language screening tool in the Netherlands and then examined the outcomes at school age when the children were about eight years of age. And for these children, whether they received the screening tool or not, there were no significant difference um, in their uh, school outcomes. So those were the first two studies that we found of direct evidence for screening tools. The second line of evidence that we examined came from the outcomes of treatment trials for children who already had identified developmental delay. So we found in this body of literature that there were some small treatment trials for speech and language interventions and for autism spectrum disorder interventions. And from these trials, we found that there was some evidence suggesting that treatment for these types of developmental delay were beneficial as compared to no treatment. However, it's important to note that these children who participated in these treatment trials uh, were not enrolled in the treatment trials following screening. So from that, the task force um, raised the concern that there was no evidence that screening was necessary to actually uh, achieve the benefits of treatment. And then I just want to describe the third line of evidence that we examined. This came from assessing the diagnostic test accuracy of, the, of most commonly used standardized tools. In the guideline, we present the sensitivity, specificity, positive and negative predictive values, and false positives and false negatives for three uh, standardized tools. Overall, um, each of these tools showed poor to moderate accuracy, and this uh, raised for the task force the possibility that poor accuracy might lead to a high number of false positives, and um, false positives can lead to uh, parent anxiety, concerns around labeling, and the unnecessary use of resources. So just to summarize, uh, we examined three lines of evidence, and given the limitations of this evidence, uh, this is what led us to our recommendation against using standardized uh, screening tools. And then I just wanted to add uh, to your comment about this differing from other organizations such as the Canadian Pediatric Society and the American Academy of Pediatrics. 
And I think the differences in these recommendations reflect the different methods that um, the organizations use. So the task force, uh, the Canadian task force, uses uh, specific methods to synthesize and grade the quality of evidence and translate these into recommendations. It might be also helpful for uh, practitioners to know that um, in the same time period, the U.S. Preventative Services Task Force uh, has just published two guidelines, one in 2015 and one very recently in 2016, on the topics of screening for speech and language delay and screening for autism spectrum disorders. And although the U.S. Task Force uses a slightly different grading system as compared to the Canadian Task Force, the U.S. Task Force um, concluded that for both of these topics, there was insufficient evidence to assess the balance of benefits and harms of screening, and overall, this would be consistent uh, with the recommendations that the Canadian Task Force found for general development screening. Well, thank you very much. I think that's a really, really helpful explanation because I think we sit right. Sometimes with practitioners, we think we ought to be doing something. And I think that's where the next, my next question comes from. Because one of the things that you've been very careful to talk about is is screening tools as opposed to developmental surveillance. Can you maybe explain a little bit how does the screening, which you're recommending that, that physicians not do for developmental delay, differ from what we should do, which is developmental surveillance? Yes, thank, thank you for this really important question. The task force recognized that there uh, was a distinction uh, in terminology between screening and surveillance. And um, we also recognize that this terminology seems to be very well understood in the field of developmental pediatrics. And we aim to be consistent with that field, so we wanted to use the same terminology. However, we also recognize that this terminology might not be well understood by many other practitioners, including primary care practitioners. Um, so uh, we were as careful as we could be to provide definitions in the guideline. And um, I just want to sort of read them to you now so we're very careful about that language. Screening in this context refers to the use of a standardized tool to search for developmental delay in children without recognized signs of developmental delay and whose parents and clinicians have not raised concerns. But screening uh, differs from developmental surveillance, which is defined as the ongoing monitoring and assessment by clinicians um, of a child's development, identification of risk factors, and elicitation of parental concerns. The task force reflected on this terminology and felt that uh, while surveillance is a well-understood term in developmental pediatrics, the task force might normally consider uh, the concept of surveillance to be what practitioners often uh, refer to as good standard clinical practice. So what should doctors do differently in clinical practice based on the findings of this guideline? How would this change what they might do? So practitioners may change what they're doing if they are currently using standardized developmental screening tool. They may uh, make some decisions about whether they want to discontinue this. However, we uh, do recommend that practitioners continue to provide developmental surveillance at each clinical visit. 
And um, just to remind our listeners that in the first five years of life, children have many scheduled visits for immunizations, for example, um, and they also have many unscheduled visits uh, for acute illness. So this provides an incredible opportunity for practitioners to be very vigilant and uh, monitor and assess children's development. Um, This means asking parents about key milestones, for example, and then examining and observing children in a very developmental context while they're in the examining room. Parents should always be asked if they have any concerns, and uh, doctors should always be aware of risk factors. These risk factors, as we spoke about earlier, could be risk factors that are biological risk factors, but they also could be social risk factors. And if if physicians identify any of these, this may prompt them to want to do a more detailed assessment. If practitioners identify developmental concerns, they may recommend closer follow-up in their own clinic setting. They may want to refer to a specialist, such as a pediatrician or developmental pediatrician, or refer to community resources, such as speech and language therapy. Um, And then uh, practitioners, I think, have an incredible opportunity to link and connect families with community-based health promotion uh, programs, which are widely available across the country. Patricia, are there any resources that you can recommend for primary care practitioners to help in developmental surveillance? Uh, One type of surveillance checklist is um, the Rourke Baby Record. And I think the developers of the work Baby Record have conceptualized that this would be a way to prompt uh, clinicians to uh, monitor all aspects of children's health, but including children's uh, developmental health. I need to underscore here that uh, our task force did not assess uh, surveillance approaches or checklists, uh, but conceptually ongoing surveillance and perhaps using these types of checklists uh, could be considered by practitioners. Yeah, I certainly have used the the Rourke baby record in my practice and found it very helpful. Particularly, it was helpful before I had I had a child. <laughs> when when you're not really familiar with exactly what children do at different times in as the, as they develop. For any parents of young children listening, what is your advice? Well, I think that's a great question. In my experience as a pediatrician, I'm always uh, so impressed that parents are really highly motivated. Um, and they, they're incredible observers. So they really have first-hand knowledge day-to-day of their extraordinary changes in their child's um, development. I think parents are also really attuned to watching their own children, and if they have more than one child, they gain experience through their older children. They often read books. Um, they certainly speak to family and friends about um, how their children are developing. Many parents tell us, and I'm sure you've had this experience, Diane, that they don't want to compare this child with um, other children, either their older child or relatives. And this, to me, is a great example of how parents uh, have done an amazing job of observing that no two children are exactly alike, even siblings are not alike. Um, And this really underscores the uh, concept that there is a range of ages for children to, to acquire developmental skills. Nonetheless, uh, parents are often the first to recognize true developmental concerns. So if I had to give advice to parents, I would certainly promote them to uh, keep careful observation of their uh, child's development. And if they have something that concerns them, that doesn't seem quite right, that they could maybe um, pay a little attention to that over a few-day period of time 
sort of take some careful mental notes and that when they next go to see their child's um, primary care practitioner, they could make some careful explanations about what it is they've observed so that they can describe it to their child's um, practitioner. Um, I think they should be feeling uh, certainly empowered to raise any of those concerns at their uh, doctor's visits because this is important to their doctor, uh, not just aspects about their physical development or their physical health. And um, if if they have a child in a child care setting, they should certainly speak to their child's um, early childhood educator on a regular basis. Uh, early childhood educators are well-trained in um, understanding developmental skills in children. If their young child has already started in junior kindergarten, I mean, some children are in junior kin- kindergarten before their fourth birthday, parents should take advantage of that opportunity and speak to their um, child's teacher. And this is really a great time to be talking, not just about learning, you know, ABCs and counting, but about social skill development and communication skill development, because these are really important for children's long-term well-being I think I would also advise parents to take advantage of uh, the incredible publicly available resources uh, that promote children's uh, development. These um, programs are often available through local public health units, um, so parents should seek out information about these programs either through their own doctor, they can um, search on provincial government websites or go to their local public health department. And many of these programs have very specific goals of promoting healthy child development. So parents should really take advantage of these these opportunities. I guess the last thing to say is that um, being a parent is certainly a very challenging job. And um, it's challenging sometimes as a parent to balance what we expect for our children's development with our concerns. Sometimes parents find it that they worry too much and sometimes parents feel that they worry too little and uh, being a parent is always trying to balance those two things and I think that's why it's really important that parents feel they have a trusted source of information and knowledge um, such as the many professionals that are around their children such as physicians and uh, childcare professionals. So I think my main advice is keep close observation, try to balance concern over-concern and under-concern and uh, seek advice and uh, seek opportunities for health promotion programs. Well, thank you so much, Patricia. I think that's really, really helpful advice for our listeners. Well, thank you very much, Diane. It was a pleasure, and thank you for giving us the opportunity to provide some information about the guideline. I've been speaking with Dr. Patricia Parkin, pediatrician at the Hospital for Sick Children and professor in the Department of Pediatrics at the University of Toronto. To read the full guideline on screening for developmental delay, visit cmaj.ca.